This is Bruce Houghton of Hypebot, Bands in Town, the Skyline Artist Agency, and the Berklee College of Music. And this is the Your Morning Coffee podcast. I listen to Mike Etchard and Jay Gilbert because they are the only two people I know that have had more jobs in the music industry than I do right now. That means these guys know a lot of stuff about a lot of things. So I learn something new every time I listen to the Your Morning Coffee podcast. And you will too. From the nation, the end of the music business. What? From music business worldwide, songwriters and artists refuse to be pitted against each other. And from Hypebot, what is an AI cover song and why are major labels so afraid of them? Hmm. Oh my goodness, Jay. We have much to talk about today. We are both back and we are happy to be here and we are happy you are all here to our listeners. So, uh... On the count of three, let's push the button. One, two, three. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, it is good to see you, brother. Oh, it's good to see you, too. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've both been traveling and yes. it's good to be home, but uh, we both had some uh, some interesting experiences this last week. You were at NAM. I was in Nashville. Um, how was NAM? NAM was a blast, man. It's yeah. always fun to, to see everybody. And a uh, big shout out to Jean O'Keefe and the Lippin, and the Lippin Group, who uh, they kind of, they're the the organizers really of all the press and media things and they are so kind and nice. have a wonderful setup and then big thanks to uh, David Glaubke over at Harmon they have a really neat media setup so it was oh, really nice. fun oh my goodness had a great time and I got a chance to meet one of our listeners uh, Dan Conley and he shot me a note when we were talking about it uh, last week about going and the fact that you weren't able to go and he said hey can we connect and I did and it was wonderful to kind nice. of connect with him he's a guitar player and works over at Microsoft and listens in. But as we were chatting, and it, it, it again felt like I'd known this guy for ten years, and we were just sitting there talking about gear and stuff like that. But he got real serious at one point. He looked at me and he said, "Hey, you got to talk to Jay. You guys have to get that uh, music documentary list going." He's ah. like, I, I love music documentaries. I'm waiting for that. So we got to do that uh, All right. for sure. But but bumped into a Brent Butterworth. He writes for The Wirecutter and good to see him. And I saw Gigi Johnson over oh, at yeah. Uh, yeah. the Music Technotic. We Techno- love Gigi. <laughs> I can't even say it. Uh, music Tectonics get together. Um, and, I, and I and our friend Greg Penny was there. So I got to see oh, him. Oh, very uh, cool. He did, a, he did a panel with uh, Chandra Lynn. And, I, you know, we talked about AI. And I do want to mention, I spoke with, I met a guy named Gabe uh, Cowan and he he has a company called Audio uh, Design Desk. And a side note, Gabe was signed to Geffen Records. Uh, he was in a band called Load back in the 90s, I think it was. Um, and he went to school with Anna Warnker, who's Lenny Warnker's daughter. And uh, that was she was in the band. So, you know, one of those small world stories. But we, yeah. you know, we talked a lot about AI. And he showed me their product. And it was unbelievably cool. This is a, a, real, a product that is meant for, um, for really for, for movie, movie music and, and sound effects and design. And editing mm-hmm. and things like that. They first of all, they've created a, a very specific uh, DAW, a digital audio workstation for work for folks that work in that world, and it it's really showing you how to manage these these 
uh, catalogs of sounds that they use in music. I'm sorry, in movies. And really amazing stuff. But he showed me <clears throat> some of the AI tools. Basically, if you put, let's say you have a script, you can you can have the, the AI analyze that script and it'll give you basically a template of all of the sound effects and sound for that thing, like before wow. you've even started. So some of the AI tools that I got a chance to kind of see specifically with um, Audio Design Desk were just unbelievable. Very and of cool. course, what, what is super important in that world as ours, and we talked about it last week, which is the metadata. And the AI tools will actually analyze it and give you a starting point for what that metadata is, even if you don't have the metadata. And so, man, just really cool stuff that I got a chance to see over there. And Very uh, cool. I'm sorry you missed it, but we're going to be happy. It's going to happen again uh, in January. Back to the normal schedule. Yeah. Now. And I so planned on being there. I was supposed yeah, to no. be doing a, uh, a presentation with Mike Brandvold, and uh, unfortunately, neither one of us could make it because we were both traveling, uh, unfortunately. But uh, my buddy Mike Warner filled in and did a killer job. Uh, nice. Thank you, Mike. So, uh, yeah, uh, de definitely next year um, uh, I'll be there. Awesome. All right. Well, we will be there together for sure. Um, and then, you know, and you, you, you went to Nashville. What a fun, fun time. You always, I mean, you must be getting some pretty groovy frequent flyer miles because that's, <laughs> you've been, you've been on the road and in the air a lot. I actually booked this flight on uh, with miles because um, I was asked to come to the leadership music uh, event and do a presentation with my dear friend, uh, Cameo Carlson, who's the president of M Theory. And it was fantastic. Uh, we were there with a lot of really creative and smart people. And uh, we just had a great time. And, and I had a, a series of meetings while I was there. Um, I met with, you know, um, Major Bob Music, which is publishing, you know, Bob Doyle and Associates, which is artist management. Um, and that was all due to this really cool guy, uh, Patrick Bellinson, who I was introduced to by my good friend Taylor Blasco, who's over at Sony. Um, anyway, Patrick turned me on to this band um, called Treaty Oak Revival. And uh, uh, they're amazing. Um, let's, let's take a little listen to uh, Treaty Oak Revival. Curbside liquor in my cup Wish says goodbye And the phone hangs up And it's kinda got me feeling Some type of way Like a sinner left Sitting on judgment day So these guys are a lot of fun, and if you can't uh, have fun at a Treaty Oak Revival show, you probably don't have uh, a pulse. Um, lots of fun. And then, you know, I also got to see some old friends while I was there, you know, uh, Ace Road Manager, Jake Viacci, love that guy, um, my old friend David Sanders, just so many great people that I got to spend some time with, um, but uh yeah, uh, it was a, a fun week in, in Nashville. Um, before we kind of move into um, this week, I wanted to touch on Record Store Day, which is yes. coming up next week. Um, and the Record Store Day after this weekend, this coming weekend, will be the Black Friday uh, Record mm -hmm. Store Day. And um, if you're an artist or a label, um, submissions are now being accepted for Black Friday, a record store day now through um, May 2nd. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, make sure you submit your titles early to record store day. They have a spreadsheet that you need to use. Uh, you can go to their website. Um, but, you know, they warn, 
you know, respectfully, please don't go into production on anything that's intended for record store day without their approval, um, because there's a approval process, right? So the earlier, the better for, uh, for record store day. And so if you want more info, visit their record store day website. Very exciting. And, uh, again, big, big hats off to those, the folks that who put that on because it's such a great event. And, Again, they have so many folks that want to get in on it. So uh, May 2nd for something that happens in November, yes. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's it's the six Ps, Jay. Proper planning prevents piss poor performance. So Absolutely. It's, you want to be it's, there, get on it. We're big fans of Record Store Day, and uh, I can't wait uh, for this week. So a um, couple of things in your morning coffee, uh, the newsletter, a couple of milestones this week that I thought were really, really interesting. Um, from Variety, global music streams hit one trillion. Oh my God, that's amazing! And and Miley Cyrus's "Flowers" is crowned the most consumed song of 2023. Again, that's from Variety. And wow. then from Music Business Worldwide, Latin music surpasses one billion dollars in U.S. recorded music revenue in 2022 and claimed an 8% market share of streaming re- revenues. And you and I have been you know, hinting that this milestone was coming, but yeah. it came a little bit quicker than we thought. And I got a really nice note from Bruno Del Granado, you know, uh, head of Latin music over at CAA. And uh, uh, he was very excited about it. And also mentioned, he mentioned to me this, um, that total retail revenues generated by Latin music in the U.S., Came in, you know, like I said, a little over a billion. It's 1.09 billion last year. But that's an increase, get this, of nearly 24% year over year from 2021. Wow. Crazy. Amazing. Amazing. Well, it's, you know, and we've talked about this a lot. That's, you know, what, what streaming has done has really opened up all of these markets to everyone. And guess what? People are curious and listening and liking it. Yeah. And uh, it's fantastic. So there's some other uh, recent highlights. 2014 uh, streaming surpasses, back in 2014, I should say, streaming surpassed CD revenue in the U.S. Back in 2016, streaming surpassed downloading revenue. Mm-hmm. And now fast forward to just last year, 2022, streaming reached 84% of recorded music revenue in the U.S., uh, 67% worldwide. And then this year, vinyl unit sales surpassed CD sales for the first time back since 1987, of course. So, wow, wow. that is yeah. just crazy. Yeah. And I sent you a, a really interesting and, and, uh, article in the that was from the Washington Post, I think, about vinyl. And, yeah. you know, it's just... And I was there, and, and again, I at, at NAMM, so many people talking about vinyl. It was just unbelievable, you know? And yeah. that's... I, I, it's just, I never saw it coming. It's like, not just, just a phase, right? It's not just a phase. Yeah, it, it just keeps like growing it. and growing. And now I had a conversation this morning um, about the turnaround times that, mm. gosh, I remember during the lockdown, it was like nine months. And now it's getting closer to like three months. And in some oh. cases, even much less um, uh, planning that capacity for vinyl production. So that's all good news. And a couple of highlights for me this last week. One was, remember we had uh, Dr. Martin Clancy on. I he do. did an audio drop because he's this expert in AI music. Um, so it wasn't like a long interview. It was only like five minutes, but he was great. And we'll have him on again. But I was listening to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle podcast, one of the best ones out there, if you haven't heard it. Um, episode 468 was his interview with Dr. Martin Clancy. Highly recommend that um, if you get a chance. And then in your morning coffee, the newsletter, there is a, um, a an access code. So you can get a ticket to the uh, Indie 101 online mu- music conference that's coming up. You can get in for free. Just use that access code. So check out your morning coffee. And uh, if you can attend it, um, that Indie 101 online music conference. Yeah, all good stuff. All good stuff. All right. What do you say, Jay? We jump into our stories. The well, do you want to you want to thank our sponsors? Because we almost oh. forgot last week. <laughs> and I almost <laughs> forgot again. 
Yeah. Well, you started off. Okay. So we, we want to thank HypeBot. I mean, first and foremost, they've been with us from the very beginning. Um, Thank you, Bruce Houghton and your great team over there. We love HypeBot. It's our go-to place, you know, for music news. And plus we have such great conversations with Bruce. Anyway, since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, indeed. Bands in Town, my first app on my my first iPhone. Uh, I am one of uh, 74 million live music fans who trust Bands yep. in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. Although Paul McCartney has yet to reach out to me. I'm very disappointed in that. But it is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and we got the uh, Music Biz Conference coming up um, from the Music Business Association. I'll be speaking at uh, Music Biz 2023, the conference. It's happening May 15th through the 18th in Nashville. So join me and many others as we discuss the most important topics for the music business, this new music business. Um, See the full agenda and register on their website. That's the Music Business Association and the Music Biz 2023 conference. And big thanks to the Music Business Association, HypeBot and Bands in Town. We could not do it without you. And of course, speaking of not doing it without you, I could not do this podcast without Jay Gilbert, who is a music business consultant. He is the curator, of course, of the most groovy weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter. And he's a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. And ah. a very hardworking individual. Oh, I'll just thank say you so much. A very caffeinated individual. And uh, this gentleman <laughs> sitting true. across from me is Michael Etchart, a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. We have a lot of good stuff to talk about today, Michael. We do indeed, and thank you for slapping me silly for not for forgetting to even do that. God well, we both dang. we both almost forgot. The last few weeks, we've been so excited uh, about to to the, the embarrassment of riches when it comes to stories to talk about that, you know, we talk prior to hitting record, typically mm-hmm. for an hour, Always. and then yep. we get on, and we're just so excited to talk about this stuff that sometimes we, we forget. It's okay. We do. We do, we do, we do. And I'm sort of getting old, so there you have it. Uh, okay, this is From the Nation, and the, the it's by Ethan Iverson, and it's the end of the music business. Ooh. And it starts, of course, back in 1902, Thomas Edison's wax cylinder was finally sturdy enough to be sold in bulk, and Americans started buying recordings of music for the home phonograph. There was money to be made from this novel idea, and Enrique Caruso's rendition of Vesti la Giubo, I think is the way, from the way you pronounce it, um, from uh, Pagliacci, uh, Pagliacci uh, would sell you, a, uh, not so much, would sell a million <laughs> copies by the end of 1903. Soon enough, the 78 RPM record, a brittle disc of lacquer with grooves on each side, became the standard. Yeah, my parents had a bunch of uh, 78s. I remember those. I didn't realize that that started in 1902, uh, this music business, right? So those yeah. early 78s, they were short. They were only like three minutes aside. So, you know, compressed for sonic range. They, they said that the bass register was kind of weak on those. I mean, but they're 78s. I mean, this is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a noise that was created that was, they, they mentioned it was like a low sizzle, like frying steak. <laughs> You know, when you listen to music. So there was a race for improved technology, right? So engineers started using electricity. Think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. In the late 20s and magnetic tape in the 1930s. Okay, we're moving along here now. But one post-war development proved to be definitive. That's the long-playing micro-groove vinyl disc, right? Uh, Originally, it was like 10 inches in diameter, later expanded to 12 inches, And it rotated smoothly around 33 and a third RPM, right? The key was duration. Up to 45 minutes of music could now stand as a unified statement, right? 
Yeah, so uh, starting in 1955, give or take, uh, countless labels churned out 12-inch records documenting the peaks of human achievement in all genres. Classical music, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, and everything else. A Beethoven symphony fit on an LP, so did a songbook recital by Ella Fitzgerald or a concept album by The Beatles. For modern jazz, the classic LP is the basic text and the organizing principle of the genre. Ah, uh, we grew up on them, you know, yes, and album did. was pricey, you know, albums yes, were pricey back then, you know, so more popular, you know, purchases in those years were the cheaper 45. And even when I was young, I bought a lot of 45s. My grandfather had a barbershop and right next door was this gentleman who repaired jukeboxes and he would sell us his used records. And I think we could get like three of them for some ridiculously low price, like 25 cents or something. And I was constantly buying these 45s, right? Well, and you and I've talked about this over the years, uh, which was 45s for our generation. That was the gateway drug to buying albums. And, Mm -hmm. And that's that once we moved to CDs, that really... Uh, was missed, in fact, because that was really how young people got into music and buying music early. Right. And I worked for two very uh, iconic record executives, and one of them thought that we should kill the single altogether to force people to buy the full CD album because it was licensed to print money back then. The other one thought, nope, it's that entry drug. We need to have it. They had cassette singles. Eh, they toyed around with CD singles, but they were too expensive. They weren't mm-hmm. you know, really that viable. Um, but in the late 60s, um, the record industry tried out eight-track tapes. Remember those? Um, yes. Cassette tapes. Both were good for cars and trucks. And later cassettes were found to be, you know, like in boom boxes, Walkmans. Still, the item that pulled the most weight was the LP. Um, which was not only a delivery system for the sounds, but also a perfect accessory for the lifestyle. You know, after dropping the needle onto the record, one could sit back and look at the LP jacket and its cover art and liner notes and technical information, you know, and that's really what's missing today. It, that was such a big part of my, my childhood. You know, you could reorder your record collection according to name, genre, label, or even spine color. I've seen that a couple of times. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, This more than 30-year run of the LP, excellence and commercial success, reached an, uh, I can't even say that word this morning, (laughs) reached a nadir, let's say, in 1982 with Michael Jackson's Thriller, which Sony claims has sold more than 100 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. A few years later, the LP was seemingly rendered nearly obsolete by the compact disc. Invented back in 1979, but not widely seen until 1984. The expensive and supposedly sonic, sonically superior CD initially sold in bulky and wasteful packaging to discourage shoplifting. The yeah. infamous long box. The infamous long box, or they also had, like Motown used the clamshell, which was oh, basically yeah. a clear plastic thing. And it says here, not widely seen until 1985, but I was working in a record store at the time, and we had a rack of them in 1983. A pretty large rack of them in 1983, including the Beatles Abbey Road, which was a Japanese import, which I still have, because it was pulled off the market shortly thereafter. And it was years before the Beatles would allow their music uh, on CD. But I also remember, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I also remember I was... I, I couldn't wait to update my catalog. Not only was I updating my catalog, I was enthusiastically and yeah. maniacally updating my catalog because yeah. I, I was I was ready to move on to something else. I don't know why yeah. I was so Well, there's no noise. You know, when you played a there CD, no like when I played my albums and I played them a lot, after mm-hmm. a while, the quality would degrade. And it just happened. But with the CD, it sounded the same every time you, yeah. you played it. So the music business you know, made serious money with the album, the LP, but the CD that expanded profits to astronomical levels. Everyone suddenly agreed that, you know, uh, not just buying the newly released CD, but to replace all of their vinyl, like you just mentioned, you know, for 10 or 15 years, things like fancy box sets, you know, from legacy artists, you know, they were highly prized Christmas presents. I remember vividly in 1999, a particularly good year, record companies raked in $25.6 billion in 2023 dollars. 
Yeah. Few realize it at the time, but the seeds of the industry's collapse were contained in the digital underpinnings of the new format. CDs are rendered in the binary logic of zeros and ones, just like computer code, and this modality makes for easy replication. Mm -hmm. The peak of CD buying came a century after the first mass-produced wax cylinder. This coincided with the rise of personal computers equipped with a CD drive and an MP3 application like iTunes. Recordable CDs had been around for a while, but now everyone could rip and burn the music of on their expensive CDs with no loss of sound quality and share it with others. Game over. Game over. You know, burning CDs was just the beginning of that era's complete system failure. That binary code had invaded our society via the internet, and soon file sharing was everywhere, followed by, later, uh, streaming services. But the first culprit, Napster, reared its ugly head in right around 1999, and the record industry managed to shut it down for copyright infringement, uh, and that was around 2001. Yes. And getting back to the, the whole composition of what a CD is, I remember somebody explaining it to me, like, you know, what digital things are versus analog things. And it just made my head spin at the time. Yeah. I couldn't really fathom it's that. It's like for, witchcraft. That's right. It's like <laughs> it voodoo. It's, how but for work? a lot of people, that was their first, and this was really well before computers. You know, I, was, I didn't have a computer. I had a CD player. But there, somebody was kind of explaining yeah. to me what how that worked and everything. So it was really interesting, and it's hard to believe or hard to remember, really. But YouTube started back in two thousand and five, yeah. uh, the same year Pandora Radio exploded. Tower Records, the mainstay brick and mortar store for music yeah. mavens, folded in two thousand and six. You know, I worked there for five years. I did know that. Yeah, absolutely. That was the the best job ever. I loved coming to work. Every day, but sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. So true. I just loved it so much. Um, after various arguments, everyone simply gave up and let Spotify enter the American market. Yes, in 2011. Man, it's been more than 10 years. Uh, the Manhattan brick and mortar chain of JNR Music Ooh, held on JNR. until 2014. Yeah. But since its final location pulled down the shutters, there hasn't really been a store in New York City where one could browse all the important new releases in jazz, classical, and pop. If you aren't online, you're out of luck. And I do want to say something. We talking about Tower Records and J and R music. Yeah. The, the 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 genres that were really hit the hardest by that by those the loss of those stores was jazz and classical because you know that was where you would really go, get a chance to go and talk to knowledgeable people about various versions of all the great symphonies. We were and the search and, engine. People would yes. come in and say, "Hey, yes. last week you sold me A, B, and C. What else is good?" Or mm -hmm. I heard this song. And it goes like this, you know, we were, uh, you know, all of those things rolled up into one and it was, it was so fun to work. I worked for an independent record store for four and a half years or so, and then tower for another four and a half, five years. Uh, it was, I learned so much and you're around music people, which I really enjoy. But as this article points out, and this is such a great article, you can't stop the music. You know, all of these things did not stop non-musicians from continuing a career in the music industry, especially those employed at record companies and record stores. But a lot of committed and supportive people were suddenly out of work. Yeah, countless musicians have been exploited by the system, in some cases making pennies for innov innovations that have influenced the culture worldwide. Many of us can quote oh. <laughs> this line. <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I've sent this to so many people over the years. Many of us can quote Hunter S. Thompson verbatim, and this is in, in quotes. The music business is a cruel and shallow money trend, a long plastic highway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> Classic. God, I love that line. I don't know if he even said that. It doesn't matter. I don't want to let facts get in the way of a good story. It was exactly. such a great quote. Um, there was a silver lining to all of this early all-digital era, a glamorous sort of new toy, the iPod. Mm, uh, I love yeah, my iPod, right? For people serious about curating their collection, that first genera generation iPod was almost magical. And he says, you know, the... He says about writing this, my goal was simple. If I got run over by a bus, the still vibrating iPod clutched in my dead hand would contain my official opinion of the best of the best. 
Well, and if we, you and I have talked about this, I think maybe even on, on the show, but certainly offline too, is, you know, before the iPod, there was the Walkman. And so I, I was doing a lot of running in those days and I would, it would, I would just sit around and make, you know, running tapes or gym yeah. tapes. Yeah. Cause the Walkman and, was cassette tape. Exactly. Of course. And so with that, you could do that. And you just thought that, you know, you had to put in the time and it took however oh. long it took to make the tapes and, and. And then the then the iPod happened, and oh my God, you know, you, it was so easy to create a list from your library, a playlist, unbelievably cool. So that, you're that, right. That's, that that's was reco- the original playlist. You're absolutely yes. right. You were creating those mixtapes. I was creating those mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Oh man, they were the best because you could finally put your favorite songs from all your different albums in the order that you wanted, and you could, you know, give them to someone you're dating to show how serious you were. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of thought put into those. There was, but it was a pain in the ass too because it yeah. took a long time to it do did. it. It did. Uh, as, as he goes on to say in the in the article, Apple had other plans. Not satisfied with the iTunes model, which of course was buying two for a dollar a piece, very popular at the time, uh, but it entered the streaming game with Apple Music, available mm-hmm. on the company's new juggernaut, the iPhone. And I remember, by the way, if, if I again uh, pausing this thing for a second, uh, you had the first. Uh, you got the. You were there the day in 2007, I think it was, when the first iPhone came out. And uh, I can't you were the first you person that. I knew that had one. Oh yeah, yeah I remember I you. We, waited. In you line. waited in line. Yeah. They didn't. You know, when the iPhone came out, they didn't have uh, a lot of these apps and things yet. We didn't know what you could actually do with this thing. It wasn't until right. much later, but yeah. Well, that's right. Well, and don't forget also, which sucked at the time, and the reason I didn't jump onto it fast was very quickly was because the iPhone was only available on AT and T at first. That's right. It wasn't available on all of all of the services. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then then you know from there, uh, first Apple discontinued the optical drive on its laptops. So to rip CDs, one now needs well now one needs an old fashioned external drive. Mm -hmm. Then late uh, then last year, it quietly discontinued the iPod. Mm. No more iPods. Uh, Apple wanted all roads to lead to a certain mothership, and it has essentially made that happen. Everyone, this the writer saying this. Everyone I know listens to their music with AirPods connected to Apple music via the iphone boy talk about your the control of the entire ecosystem right it's ubiquitous and he goes on to say since i take music seriously and prefer not to be tethered to an iphone at all times i still love my ipods and i know you and i do too right i've had six or seven of the beloved things for me Uh, They're just about perfect. Music streaming has done a lot of good. Don't get me wrong. The old industry was a classic gatekeeper and only a chosen few got a chance. Now everyone has a shot. Yes, indeed. And I will say too that my, for my iPod use, it's on flights. You know, I still take an iPod along because it's great to have streaming, but if you don't have internet, you know, I mean, you can sort of get through it, but it's it's so much easier to just take an iPod. So uh, it goes on. No one outside of the inner corporate circles really knows how the economics of streaming of the streaming world works. It pays, but what? But what does it pay, and to whom? Reasonably high profile artists in many genres have not been shy about posting their meager Spotify royalty checks to social media. Many of those artists then encourage listeners to buy their music on Bandcamp as a moral choice. That's when you know the old model is truly dead. Buy my music as a moral choice. Hmm, the right. music business as we know it lasted about a century from 1903 to 2003. Personally, I worry about the metadata. When you bought an LP, you were more or less, you know, you had to take in some text, especially liner notes for jazz, classical records, etc. In a CD package, the print was smaller sometimes too small to read actually, but, it, but at least it was there. Streaming has almost no text. Yeah, one can look it up online, but I still think there's something that's being lost. You know, for example, in jazz, it's of vital importance to, a know, to know who completes the band. Who are those side men? Who are the people mm-hmm. playing in that band? You know, over the past seven years, many of my jazz students at the New England Conservatory of Music have had no idea who is playing bass and drums on the albums that they're streaming. And that's sad. It's a bummer. Enough money is being made by streaming, though, for some to claim that the music industry is back. Apple Music is simply a loss leader for the company and that Spotify has yet to turn a profit. We are a long way from understanding the ramifications of having it all available at the click of a button. Still, 
music will survive. As a counterweight to streaming, the LP has enjoyed an amazing resurgence. Last year, some 43.5 million LPs were sold in America. The writer goes on to say, when I switched from LP to CD in the late 80s, I thought for sure that was that. But people like buying vinyl. They like the size and they like the sound. Yeah, they do. The vinyls return. Uh, you know, the LPs return. Kids call it the vinyls. Um, it, it does give me hope for an unlikely win in the future. Reportedly, even the lowly cassette tape is back in favor of, uh, uh, you know, with listeners who prefer, prefer a lo-fi or punk aesthetic. Boy, I'm just stumbling on this stuff. Who knows? Maybe Apple will reinduce, reintroduce the iPod. Holy cow. Um, look, I love my iPod. And, you know, I told you that I was in, in Nashville for this leadership music thing and, and did a presentation with Cameo Carlson. And that's what we discussed. The, the headline was the history and business of streaming and digital. And we really discussed ways that technology has disrupted the business. And, you know, we just touched on a lot of those in this wonderful, wonderful piece. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. And again, that was from The Nation. Um, that's the outlet. And it was written by Ethan Iverson. Um, Ethan, what a great job. What an interesting piece you put together there. Um, wow. Starting in 1902 with the wax cylinder. You know, and my my uh, my mother-in-law has my wife's grandfather's wax cylinders still. Whoa. And I believe um, the uh, UC Santa Barbara has an enormous archive and collection of wax Those. cylinders because... You know, one of the things that that people kind of forget, too, is that whenever there is a transition from one format to another, so let's say it's wax cylinders to shellac, then to LPs and cassettes, a lot of stuff doesn't make the, the jump. And for whatever reason, contracts right. being what they are. And so... You know, there's a lot of stuff that you can still find on VHS, like music documentaries that that were never cleared for DVD, and never never mind Blu-ray. Um, and the same thing happens certainly in music. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff on these wax cylinders or on Schlack or on yeah. 78s that that's the only place they exist. They yeah, and that happened. They didn't make the jump. You're you're absolutely right. That happened when we went from physical to digital because I was at Universal at the time and part of my job was encoding and delivering um, for the DSPs some of these albums. And it took a while to, some of them, we couldn't find the masters. Um, mm -hmm. Then we would find them or we would recreate them. Or there were certain albums, as you mentioned, that were only cleared for a certain use or a certain period of time. Right. And then they couldn't be uh, reissued after that. So... Yeah, fantastic kind of look through how technology has disrupted the music industry for like 100 years. <laughs> exactly, for like 100 years. Well put. Uh, our next story is from Music Business Worldwide. Songwriters and artists refuse to be pitted against each mm. other. And this is actually an op-ed from David Israelite. He, of course, is the president and CEO of the National Music Publishers Association, the NMPA, which yep. is a trade association representing American music publishers and their songwriting partners. Right. In a recent, uh, you may have read about this or heard this from us, in a recent rate court proceeding, BMI scored a significant raise for songwriters and music publishers, you know, from concert promoters in the United States. After a protracted uh, litigation, BMI won a 138% historical rate increase against Live Nation, AEG, and the North American Concert Promoters Association, NACPA, representing the largest concert promoters in the world. Right. So, however, instead of accepting the court decision that songwriters uh, deserve more, a troubling narrative emerged. These billion-dollar companies once again responded by claiming this increased income would not be taken out of their plentiful profits, but would instead be taken from performing artists' shares. Their response is a common obfuscation that must be addressed. Right. These companies, as well as the others represented by the NACPA, are more than capable of finding the additional revenue to pay songwriters their fair share. And again, this is this op-ed um, by uh, David Israelite. In obscuring the issue, they want everyone to believe there is one pie and it is up to the songwriters and artists to divide it up amongst themselves. He goes on to say, we as an industry reject this argument mm -hmm. and refuse to turn artists against songwriters 
in pursuit of money that should be coming from neither's, neither's pockets, but from the promoters themselves. Keep in mind, this significant increase brings the total paid to songwriters and music publishers to a mere 0.5% of gross ticket sales. Encouragingly, though, this percentage does come from a larger swath of the concert industry, now including tickets sold directly to the secondary market, as well as covering some fees and VIP packages. Consider the concert industry without songwriters, right? Excuse me. It simply would not exist. Amen. Um, While some artists are songwriters themselves, many career creators never perform. And the fact that companies valued in the billions would not only scoff at a modest increase, but insist it comes from artist share of revenue, it's outrageous. So in response to Judge Stanton's decision, Live Nation issued a somewhat shocking statement. In, uh, in quotation marks, we advocated on behalf of artists to keep their costs down and managed to hold the increase to less than one third of BMI's proposed increase, the Live Nation statement said. This will cost the performers we work with approximately $15 million a year spread out over thousands of artists and cost increases for Live Nation directly are not material. Mm. David goes on to say that Live Nation has a market cap of just over $16 billion, dwarfing the entire economic value of the publishing and songwriting industry. In fact, in a bullish move, its CEO, Michael Rapino just bought another $1 million worth of the company's stock a few days ago, alluding to his, you know, his confidence in its growing value. If you're getting that feeling that I've heard a version of this story before, you're right. He goes on to say, we see the same argument by big broadcasting when it comes to not paying artists for terrestrial radio. For decades, artists have fought to be paid a performance right from AMFM radio, and we have stood by them, refusing to allow the flawed premise that it's us against them and that if broadcasters must pay artists, they'll have to pay songwriters less. Right. And, and they don't pay artists in the U.S., and the only other countries where they don't do that um, Russia, China, North Korea, you know, we're not in very good company there. So every year the broadcasters line up to petition lawmakers to ensure that their narrative, that a small local radio station, you know, can't afford to do both. When in reality, these stations are almost all owned by conglomerates and the smaller stations would not be affected under the, um, you know, proposed leg- legislation. Broadcasters have plenty of capital to properly pay artists without it affecting, uh, what they pay songwriters at all. Right. Digital streaming companies say the same about their gross imbalance of how much they pay songwriters versus artists. They claim they cannot afford to pay songwriters more when they already pay artists so much. Meanwhile, they have complete control over their revenue models. They offer free services, some indefinitely, and slash the cost of bundled music subscriptions, in some cases, to zero. This, again, puts the burden on creators, not the massive tech companies who need and benefit from them. Yeah, the concert promoters, broadcasters, and digital music platforms, their common excuse dodges the most obvious solution, which is for these massive multi-billion dollar companies to adjust their own margins to pay for the work that fuels their businesses. Instead of doing this, it is much more attractive to try to split the creator community into fighting each other for what does not amount to fair allocation of licenses resources. So recently, the concert industry has come under more fire than ever as countless fans clamor to find tickets to Adele, Beyonce, and Taylor Swift only to be met by endless lines, inflated prices, and unreliable secondary ticket sellers. We know these companies are finding ever more ways to milk money from concertgoers, and fans and artists deserve better. Their virtual monopolies may not stand up to congressional and antitrust scrutiny for much longer. Yeah, the uphill climb for higher concert rates is overshadowed by the many streaming battles we have fought to increases. Um, what songwriters earn from the major digital platforms. However, it should not be forgotten that songwriters are the bedrock of all of it. Yeah. BMI spent millions of dollars in many months to secure this increase, and we commend them for it, and we hope that the court's ruling is a bellwether for better, fair rates. However, it should not take such gargantuan effort to achieve what most people would consider common sense, that songwriters deserve a significant amount of income from the massive tours their songs produce. Absolutely. As Chris Dampier recently wrote, quote, when a major artist's recent tour grossed $79 million, the writer of one of the songs was paid an average of just $147 
for each performance. Wow. Artists. Unbelievable. Yeah. Artists are irreplaceable and deserve their fair share from promoters. Right. Uh, however, do not let those promoters absolve themselves by saying that giving songwriters what they deserve must come from the artist share. Uh, the pie doesn't have to be split this way. In fact, there are multiple pies to go around. Yeah. Wow. But this really just, I mean, it just, it's deja vu all over again, yeah. as they say. You know, it's its the same battle that's happening with the big radio conglomerates. They don't want to pay the performers uh, any sort of uh, revenue. And it's, like you said, it's there's only a handful of sort of pariah states that, that do it that way. And yet yeah. we're, we're mentioned in the same bunch. And yeah. Great job by right. uh, David Israelite. Um, fantastic op-ed. Yeah. And gosh, I just hope we get, you know, more, um, we just get better in this. And again, it's such a small amount of money. I mean, it's shocking. It really is. Yep. All right. Well, we have one more. We got one more. This is this number. Uh, our third story is from Hypebot. Uh, our good friend Bruce Houghton over there. Why an AI cover song? I'm sorry. What is an AI cover song? And why are major labels so afraid of them? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, boy. Can we? Uh, are there any more AI stories we can cover, Jay? I mean, it's you talk about in, it's the hot all topic. across media. AI is the most hot topic at the moment. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's really misunderstood. And we had Chris Castle on to kind of help us uh, understand some of it. Um, we're going to have some more guests coming up as it evolves and changes, as we like to say. It's changed since we've been having this conversation. So, you know, this last week we learned that Universal Music Group is leading the major label charge against AI, artificial intelligence, in music with a multitude of takedown notices and a warning to Spotify and Apple Music to block AI systems from scraping music and lyrics from their services for use in future songs. Right. And a major target of the takedown is AI cover songs. But what is an AI cover song? How do they sound? And why do the major music companies hate them so much? Right. You know, AI, artificial intelligence, cover songs. They use AI to create cover versions of songs that sound like famous artists without their input or consent, really. So, for example, AI created uh, Ariana Grande singing SZA's Kill Bill and Justin Bieber, you know, covering Miley Cyrus's Flowers. Um, we should listen to a little bit of that. first track was the AI created version of uh, Justin Bieber doing Miley Cyrus's flowers. And the second one was the AI created Ariana Grande allegedly singing kill bill. Well, it's it, again, the power of this technology. And of course, the first thing everybody's thinking is how can I make money on this? And <laughs> you know, how can I skirt the system? And right. there, there you have it right there. Um, exactly. And it's, this is in its infancy. So imagine what, you know, these future versions um, are, are going to be able to do. They can literally create a song that sounds like your favorite artist, uh, that they're performing it, and it's not. Um, so why do major labels hate them so much? pretty obvious, but after all, you could argue that properly labeled AI cover songs aren't that much different than a tribute act, you know, like for the Beatles or Pink Floyd or something like that. But the major music companies, they see it a little bit differently. Right. The trade group, the RAAA has said that the use of the use is unauthorized and infringes our members' rights by making unauthorized copies of our members' works. 
On Wednesday, a spokesperson for Universal Music went a step further. This in quotations. Uh, we have a moral and commercial responsibility to our artists to work to prevent the unauthorized use of their music and to stop platforms from ingesting content that violates the rights of artists and other creators. We expect our platform partners will want to prevent their services from being used in ways that harm artists. Right. Muddying the waters further is, is the web, you know, and inadequate copyright law and legal decisions written when music AI was only a distant possibility. Um, so this is going to be evolving and changing. And like you said, you know, AI is everywhere now. It's in all aspects of our lives and it's not necessarily nefarious. There's some amazing things that can be done with it, but it's, it's crazy how people can draw from a body of work and mm -hmm. create you know, sort of a new work. And I want to make that distinction because when I was at this leadership music presentation, we talked a little bit about AI and two different parts of it. One is, you know, you and I have reported on that wonderful program, Lyric Studio, and that same company is launching Melody Studio. And what that does is if you and I are writing a song and let's say we have a verse and a chorus and we get stuck, we can go in there and feed that what we've created into Lyric Studio, and it might help us to finish the song in the same style that mm -hmm. we've done. And that's very helpful for songwriting. Now they're going to have a music um, melody studio coming. But that's very helpful. Um, but look at the other side of it. When someone like you and I played David Guetta, and he had that Eminem uh, voice in one mm -hmm. of his songs that he created with AI, lyrics and, and voice, well, now you're drawing on his body of work and he didn't put it out commercially. He just had fun with it. He just wanted to see if he could do it. And now there are people, as we just talked about, that are creating songs that sound exactly like your favorite artist, maybe covering somebody else's song. And it's going to get out of hand here in a minute. As it always does, though, when there's new technologies, you know, and it, it, sometimes it takes a minute for everybody to kind of get their heads and handles around where it's going and how to kind of prevent the, the, the sort of uh, bad actors from, from doing stuff like this. So this is kind of the bumpy road of technology, but uh, there's definitely some bumps in the road and yeah. uh, we will do our best to keep talking about all this stuff. And, Absolutely. Uh, yep. Educating ourselves and our listeners along the way. So uh, we yeah. do want to thank everyone for listening because it's the end of the show. So uh, if you enjoy our show, we'd certainly appreciate if you tell one friend and of course, big thanks to Hypebot Bands in Town and the Music Business Association. Uh, we really appreciate their uh, their assistance with helping us put the show together. Couldn't do yeah, it without them. We appreciate so, uh, it. We do. So on behalf of my good friend Jay Gilbert and myself, we really thank you for being here. And we will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. <music> You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.